A couple of uh, announcements. Um, today is the last lecture material that will be on midterm one. So next lecture, Tuesday's lecture, not on midterm one. Um, office hours are today uh, after class, 10.30 to 11.30, and the first floor of LSB if you want to come by. I've set up an online office hours for tomorrow. You can check on the Moodle. It's been announced there. Uh, I think it's 1 to 2. I'm not sure. Uh, I put it on the Moodle. So you, if you can't come to the office hours today, just drop in. It's basically a chat room. I'll be on for an hour. And I'm thinking I'm going to not have office hours next Thursday after the midterm. That doesn't make sense. I'm going to have office hours. I'm going to move office hours to Tuesday before the midterm. So we'll have office hours today. We'll have office hours on tomorrow online, and we'll have office hours on Tuesday before the midterm. And then I'll not have office hours after the midterm because there's not much point in doing that. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, we talked last class about uh, enzyme. Uh, Kinetics and Michaelis Menten. So, we'll talk a little bit today about enzymes, uh, some mechanisms of enzymes function. We're going to do a bit of a case study and we're talking about inhibition. Okay. So, what other factors influence the enzyme rate other than the substrate concentration? Well, there's elements of pH and temperature. Temperature should make relative sense to you. We talked about how, uh, you know, Proteins fold into a native state, and that fold, that, that structure is important for their function. And if you boil cells, then proteins tend to not stay together. They, that's basically a fried egg, right? A fried egg is basically albumin that has been heated, and now it's all denatured, and it aggregates. So you're going to lose, as temperature goes up, your um, stability of your enzymes are going to drop. Uh, and then as temperature goes down, well, then you might be getting enzymatic reactions that are uh, not very favorable anymore because they may occur at uh, temperatures that are, that they've evolved to occur at temperatures that are physiological, and, and when they get cold, it may not happen anymore. Similar idea is this idea of pH. We talked about how we have ionizable groups on amino acids, and proteins are made up of amino acids. And the protein will have evolved to assume a certain shape in response to certain amino acids being protonated or deprotonated at certain pHs. And when you change the pH, then you're going to be protonating things that shouldn't be protonated or deprotonating things that should be, you're be protonating things that should be deprotonated or deprotonating things that should be protonated, and you're going to lose, the, the, the fold of the enzyme may change, and you're going to lose activity. So this is, for example, the pH dependence of chymotrypsin. Um, this is the overall uh, pH dependence, this is the rate of the reaction, and it's happiest at pH 8. Um, okay, so before I get to this, just this is a general idea. This is pepsin. This is an enzyme that's happy in your stomach. This is glucose 6-phosphatase. This is an enzyme that's happy at neutral pH. And obviously, pepsin has evolved to be happy at pH 2, because that's the pH of your stomach. So it's actually very unhappy if you, the rate of the, of the reaction drops if you incubate at physiological pH. So basically, this is the, idea. the idea of this is enzymes evolve to be functioning at the pH at which they find themselves in their native environment. Here's chymotrypsin. It's got a similar pH uh, dependence to glucose 6-phosphatase. It's happiest around pH 8. Why is that? Well, people have done some studies on it. The K-cat of the enzyme drops precipitously as the pH goes down. That's because there's this histidine. Uh, 57, uh, that has to be deprotonated for the enzyme to work. Okay? So if you start protonating it by dropping the pH, then the, pH stop, the enzyme stops working. Okay? So the K-cat will drop. On the other hand, you've got this uh, amino terminus of the beta chain of chymotrypsin that has to be protonated. So if you're increasing the pH, that starts to become deprotonated and your 1 over Km starts to drop. Remember the Km, the lower the Km, the higher the affinity for the substrate, right? Or quote unquote affinity for the substrate. So effectively what's happening is as you're uh, increasing the pH, the affinity of the enzyme for the substrate drops. And so you get this also this drop in rate. And when you kind of combine these two curves, you get something that looks like this. Yeah. 
So this, this H57 means, again, we talked about the, a bit about this a couple classes ago with, with hemoglobin. H57 means that the 57th amino acid in chymotrypsin is a histidine. It's not the 57th histidine. Chymotrypsin doesn't have that many histidines. It'll be, if, it'll be methionine, so you guys probably know most, and we'll get to this in the second section. All, amino, all proteins start with methionine, so particular protein, it may be M1, methionine 1, alanine 2, serine 3. If you count on, on uh, chymotrypsin, the 57th amino acid is a histidine. And if we were to mutate this to, I don't know, arginine, we would write that as H57R. Okay, so enzyme catalysis occurs in the active site. What are some of the features of that active site? We talked a little bit about this last class. It's very specific. It has high affinity for the correct substrate and its shape. Its shape. Terrible. Terrible. Its shape closely mirrors that of the substrate. Uh, it's relatively small compared to the entire three-dimensional shape of the enzyme. So that's something that you may notice as you start looking at structures of proteins. The protein may be quite large, and then the active site where they're actually binding the substrate and the product is relatively small compared to the whole shape of the enzyme. And that's because uh, that rest of that uh, protein may be interacting with other things. It may have other functions. Could just be that the rest of the proteins required to basically give that very, very rigid shape to the uh, active site and make sure that it's in the right Confirmation. Um, this gets a little bit back to what I, we were talking about before. Substrates are held relatively weakly in the active site by weak non-covalent interactions. And this gets a little bit back to what we talked about last class, this idea of what's the most likely thing to happen when E and S come together to form ES. The most likely thing that happens is they come back apart again. You form, so E plus S will bind to make ES, and we talked about the, the slowest step in an enzymatic reaction is K2, right? Conversion of enzyme substrate to product. Well, what that means is that K minus 1 going back is much faster than K2. That doesn't mean that K2 is not significant. Obviously, it's significant. That's the enzyme doing the chemical reaction. But for any particular interaction of E and S to make ES, the most likely thing that happens is that they fall back apart again and they don't do the chemical reaction. Occasionally they do, and that rate of that is much, much, much faster than the likelihood you'd get product without the enzyme. Okay? But again, the substrate is held relatively weakly in the active site. So we're going to talk about a couple of examples of, of uh, catalysis, and we're going to cover a, an example. One of the most uh, commonly found mechanisms of enzymes uh, promoting the chemical reaction that they catalyze is this idea of acid-base catalysis. So what, one, what happens is basically uh, one has what would be a, uh, we break this down into uh, general base catalysis or general acid catalysis. So in this case we have uh, something on the enzyme, this uh, B, this base, okay? So it acts as a base and picks up a proton, and as a result, you get this um, hydroxyanion, this OH minus, which is very reactive, okay? And that's going to want to react with something. So what that's going to do is then react with this carbon, say, on the substrate, and that's going to now, remember we always talk about four bonds to carbon. Well, when you make four bonds to carbon on this carbon, now you get this tetrahedral intermediate, and now this has to, exhibit uh, an oxy as an oxyanion, right? This O minus, right? That's also not very happy. So what's this going to do is that it's going to reform its double bond with this carbon, um, and the enzyme will have evolved to basically result in another group on the substrate reacting with the enzyme and picking up that proton that was pulled off of this water. And so you regenerate the enzyme. You go back to this B minus, but your substrate now is is different than it was before. Basically, by this mechanism, this bond here in the substrate's been broken. Okay, so you've converted it from 
this substrate into a carboxylic acid group and a hydroxyl group. Okay. What you've basically done is you've added a water. This is a hydrolysis reaction, right? You've basically added a water across this bond. Okay. You, you use this general base to split this water. You put a hydroxyl group onto this side of the substrate, the left-hand side, and you put a proton onto the right-hand side over here. This is the basic opposite of that. Okay. This is general acid catalysis. In this case, this acid group donates a proton to this um, ketone group, basically, or this might be an ester. This proton gets added to this O. As a result, this double bond on the O breaks, and you get this tetrahedral intermediate around this carbon again. Again, you're going to break this bond to basically uh, regenerate that. This proton is then going to go back onto the acid, but when the proton goes back on this acid, it's not this bond that breaks, it's this one. So you regenerate that double bond O, and you get... So this is basically two different ways of doing the same thing. But what you, the point is that you've got a group on the enzyme in the general base catalysis. It's this one pulling off a proton off of water. In the acid catalysis, it's this group that's protonated that donates a proton. But in both cases, you've got a group on the enzyme that's pulling off or giving a proton to the... Um, to the substrate, you get this um, transition state, which is generally unstable. And when the transition state falls apart, it doesn't fall apart the way you made it. It falls apart a different way. And then you get, uh, so this spontaneous breaking of this carbon-oxygen bond might be very slow um, if it's just left to itself. But by virtue of this enzyme participating in this way, you can get that bond breaking at a much higher rate than you would otherwise. The R apostrophe simply stands for, so R means something, and R apostrophe means something different than the original R. So it could be anything. I mean, this, I mean, this, is, this looks like a proteolysis reaction. So R on this side would be the protein N-terminal to, to this carbon, and R prime would be um, the protein C-terminal to it. Not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. Say it again. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, this could be a C. Well, so this is a hydrolysis reaction, actually. Thank you for pointing that out. If, if this was the hydrolysis reaction of a peptide bond, this would not be an O. This would be an N. Right? So it doesn't have to be an O. But you're still adding water across this bond. Right? So this is a hydrolysis, but not necessarily a, a hydrolysis of a peptide This would not be the hydrolysis of a peptide bond. But we are going to cover the hydrolysis of a peptide bond in the next few slides. Okay, so an example of this, or something similar to this, this uh, we're going to cover the mechanism of action of the enzyme chymotrypsin. It's got a few different strategies it uses for uh, catalysis. It does an acid-base catalysis. It makes a covalent intermediate. There's an acyl enzyme intermediate. That means that there's a new covalent bond that's formed between the substrate and the enzyme, which then has to be broken. And there's this concept of the oxyanion hole, which is pretty neat. Okay, so here's the free enzyme, chymotrypsin, and this is uh, described in some detail in your textbook also, if you have it. If you haven't, you may want to read up on it, but I'll cover it. So here's our substrate. Our substrate is a protein. Chymotrypsin is a protease. It has evolved to break down proteins. Okay? And it has specificity, bless you, it has specificity for hydrophobic amino acids. Okay? It, has a it, it likes to cleave proteins um, where you have this hydrophobic amino acid here. Okay? Other proteins like trypsin, other proteases like trypsin, have specificity for positively charged uh, proteins or pro positively charged amino acids. But chymotrypsin likes to hydrolyze around hydrophobic ones. And it's got this hydrophobic pocket in the enzyme. This is a pocket that hydrophobic amino acids are happy. Right? It's, the pocket is hydrophobic. If a hydrophobic group settles into that pocket, 
it's happier there. So that's why comitrypsin, when it's cleaving proteins, it typically cleaves them at uh, hydrophobic amino acids. Okay? So here's the empty enzyme. And it's got this very kind of interesting setup. Okay? We call, there's this particular serine, serine 195, histidine 57. We talked about histidine 57 a couple slides ago. And this is aspartic acid, aspartine 102. These three amino acids are really important for what we call serine proteases. So chymotrypsin, trypsin, these are all serine proteases. They all work the same way. They have specificity for different amino acids, but they work the same way. And they're called serine proteases because of the importance of this serine. Okay? So basically, you've got this aspartic acid, which is interacting through this hydrogen bonding network to this histidine. That makes, uh, when this, because of the interaction of this aspartic acid interacting with the cimetazole ring of this histidine, okay, that increases the affinity of this N much, it, it, it wants to bind a proton much, much more. Okay? It wants to bind a proton so badly that it actually can pull the proton off of this serine. Okay, so this is, the, this is the R group of the serine, this is the hydroxyl. And so when the substrate binds, okay, this is the substrate now bound to the enzyme, like I said, this uh, N on this histidine wants to pull this proton off of this serine so badly that it actually does so, and now you've got this very reactive O- minus group on the end of this serine, and it wants to react with something, and what it does is that it reacts with this C double, eh, with this C double bond O on the protein, on the protein that's being degraded. And so basically, the N group pulls off this proton. You get this O minus, and that O minus makes a new covalent bond to this carbon that's on the substrate. Okay. And so that's what we diagrammed here. Well, what happens then? There's a few things that happen. Number one, this carbon here that was the carbon bound to the oxygen. It used to be C double bond O. Now it's C single bond O. Remember over here, this was double bonded to this uh, oxygen, right? The arrangement of this, so this is the carbon here, right? The arrangement around this carbon when it's double bound to oxygen is not tetrahedral, okay? It's actually called trigonal planar, but the point is that it's not tetrahedral, okay? It's not that thing we talked about uh, in lecture one, where you had So you've got these two R's that are coming out of the board. This one's in the plane of the board. And that one's going back into the board. It's kind of that pyramid shape. So, bless you. So this C double bond O in the conformation on the protein is not tetrahedral. But when that, uh, when the enzyme makes that new bond to this carbon, right? This carbon, the, the double bond that was here is lost, right? This becomes O minus. That O minus is stabilized by the enzyme. You know, O minus is not happy, right? It doesn't want to form. But you've got these hydrogens around that are provided by the enzyme to kind of give it a little bit of a happy space, right? This is called the oxyanion hole, okay? So you've got this new oxyanion, this O minus, right? It doesn't really want to form, but the likelihood it forms goes up because the enzyme provides this happy space where there's these protons that can help stabilize that O minus. And the oxyanion hole is much more accessible to the protein when it's in this arrangement, when it's in this trigonal planar arrangement. It's less accessible to it when it's in the, sorry, the tetrahedral arrangement here rather than the trigonal planar arrangement you see here. Okay? So, there's this negative charge on the carbonyl oxygen, and that's stabilized by hydrogen bonding in this oxyanion hole. Right? So these are all strategies the enzyme takes to basically stabilize the transition state. Right? We talked about 
the idea of how enzymes work and how the transition state is a very high energy state because it doesn't want to form, right? Well, if you've got an enzyme that provides all these little tricks or quirks to make that transition state happen more likely, then, then that's going to catalyze your reaction. It's going to favor your reaction. Okay. So another thing to bear in mind here is that in this orientation, right, the, this C, you see this CO, this is the O of the serine group, right? It's now linked to the protein. It's, it's linked physically covalently to the protein. So this is an acyl intermediate. There's, there's a, there's a, it's called an acyl enzyme. It's, and, and this is a covalent formation between the end, the, the enzyme is actually covalently linked to the substrate. And you often see this also when you see enzymes reacting with substrates to make products. Okay. So what's going to happen from here? Well, um, again, this O minus, we've promoted its formation, but it's not happy, right? It wants to go back to being O double bond C, right? But when that happens, the bond that's going to break, remember, four bonds to carbon. So to do that, you're going to have to break a bond on, that, on this carbon. The bond that breaks isn't going to be the bond that we made. It's going to be the bond between this carbon and this, and this N, right? Well, what, what bond is this? It's the peptide bond, right? This is the bond between the C double bond O of the preceding amino acid and the NH of the next amino acid, okay? So when we remake this double bond, we're going to need to break a bond, and the bond we're going to break is this one. So that is shown here. So basically what we've done is we've regenerated that C double bond O, okay? It's not as happy in the oxynan hole because of the orientation now. We've reintroduced that trigonal planar arrangement around that carbon. We've remade that C double bond O. It's not as happy in the oxynan hole. It doesn't have as many hydrogen bonds stabilizing it, but, that's, but C double bond O is happy. It's not, it doesn't need to be coddled, right? So it's, it's now reformed. The C-terminal fragment floats away. Okay? So we've basically hydrolyzed the peptide bond, which is kind of what chymotrypsin wanted to do. The C-terminal part floats off. But the problem is we've got this N-terminal part of the protein that was hydrolyzed still covalently linked to our, uh, sorry, yeah, still covalently linked by this bond here between the serine of the enzyme and that carbon, okay? So we need to now regenerate our enzyme, right? So how are we going to do that? Well, what we can do is, remember, this N on this histidine really wants a proton. It wanted a proton so badly, it pulled that hydrogen off of the serine on the enzyme. Now it's going to pull a proton off of water, okay? So water is going to come in. And remember, this is a hydrolysis reaction, right? Peptide bond breakage is we're adding water across a peptide bond. The hydrogen that we added, the hydrogen that we added here on the C-terminal product, where did that hydrogen come from? I want to make a guess. The serine, right? There's this H here that was pulled off of the serine, right? And now it's on this, um, we made a new bond here. Is that right? Yeah, so the, this N, this H kind of came on, do I have that right? This A. Yeah, so this N is now protonated, right? And then that H was added on to the C-terminal product and it floated away. So we've got to regenerate our enzyme. We've got to put an H back on that serine, right? And we've got to re regenerate our enzyme. And we need to you know, add something across this N-terminal part of the protein. So what happens is that N here that's got this high affinity for protons is going to pull a proton off of water. Okay? The hydroxy anion, right, this hydroxide ion, is going to be Again, it's, this is OH minus. It's going to bind across this carbon. You're going to regenerate the tetrahedral intermediate. Again, you're going to have four bonds to carbon. You're going to regenerate this oxyanion, 
right? It's going to again go back into the oxygen hole, right? We regenerate our tetrahedral intermediate. We regenerate the oxygen hole. But when we break a bond, remember now we've got this O minus, it's unhappy. We're going, to re -want it. We're going to want to regenerate that double bond O. We're going to have to break a bond on this carbon. Well, the one we're going to break is the one between the carbon and the serine on the enzyme. We're just going to re-break the bond we made. So it's going to take that hydrogen that came off of the water. It's going to put that hydrogen back on the serine. The, C, the O minus is going to go back on this carbon. Yep. Right. And now you're going to have the release of the N-terminal part of the protein, and you regenerate your enzyme. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Release of the second product. Okay, so this is the situation after we kind of, um, right after we broke the peptide bond, right? But our N-terminal fragment of the protein is still covalently linked to the enzyme by this acyl enzyme intermediate. We need to regenerate the enzyme and we need to get rid of this. Right? Otherwise, chymotrypsin is only going to work once, right? It's going to bind protein and hydrolyze once and then it's dead. But that's not the way enzymes are, right? Enzymes are catalysts. They're supposed to not be consumed in the reaction. So how do we regenerate our enzyme and how do we get rid of this N-terminal piece? So instead of pulling a proton off of the serine, which we already did, we're going to pull a proton off of water. So water is going to float into the active site. It's going to pull a proton. This histidine group that was capable of pulling a proton off of the serine hydroxyl group, now it's going to pull a proton off of water's hydroxyl group, I guess, so to speak. It's going to pull a proton off of this. So now you've got this NH group here, and you've got this OH minus, which is unhappy. It's going to want to bond to something, this O minus. So it m makes a new covalent bond to this carbon, which regenerates the tetrahedral intermediate by making the C double bond O, C, C single bond O, and an O minus on this, right? So you regenerate effectively the same tetrahedral intermediate you had in the first cycle of, of this reaction, right? So here's the tetrahedral. Here's the tetrahedral intermediate again. But what we've done now is what we've added an OH across this, right? We have this new OH group. Now we've got to, and again, the tetrahedral intermediate is stabilized by the oxyanion going to this oxyanion hole. We want to regenerate the enzyme. So what's going to happen is uh, we're going to break this bond. So the tetrahedral amine is not particularly happy because it's got this O minus on it. So it's going to want to remake this, the O double bond, which means one of these bonds around the carbon is going to need to be broken. We could re-break the one that we just made, but instead the one that breaks is the one here. This bond breaks, okay? And that puts, and that puts the uh, H back on this O, sorry, that gives us a CH and then an OH on the end. And then this, I, I, I didn't put the one where the, this one floats away, unfortunately. So basically, you regenerate your C, your serine with this OH on it, right? And then this C, now this is double bond O and an OH on the end. This is basically a carboxylic acid group, right? Which is the C terminus of the N terminal fragment. The N of the imidazole ring, is it hydrogen bonded to this? This one. I mean, it's got an, it's got an, uh, it's got a, it's, it's, you know, this is, this is what imidazole ring looks like when it's protonated, right? It's got a pro, it's covalently bound to a proton, but, you know, imidazole has, it's happy giving and taking protons. And, and so basically what happens is, you know, what you can think of as, so, this proton that was bound to the ring, this one came from water, it's going to be given back to this hydroxyl group on the serine. Here's the serine, right? And that's the OH. That's the R group of the serine. So it's going to give the proton back. Now, 
it's going to want to pull it off again, right? I mean, it has evolved. So you can imagine that this is kind of, once the, this floats away, this is kind of in flux, right? The pKa of this imidazole ring is such that sometimes this hydrogen is on this serine and sometimes this hydrogen is on that histidine ring. It's kind of bouncing between them and that's what lets it be active in catalysis. I don't want you to cover examples that I haven't covered, if that's your question. The question is, do you need to know this for the midterm or generally? I don't want you to know enzymes we haven't covered. I mean, we've, we've just spent, sorry, just a second. We've just spent 20 minutes talking about this. So to say it's not on the midterm is crazy. Yeah. Sorry, that. Yeah, so the OH, when the reaction is done, the OH of the serine is regenerated. Yeah, it's kind of being shared between this imidazole ring and this OH group. And that normally wouldn't happen for histidine, right? Histidine normally would not uh, be sufficiently basic to pull a proton off of a hydroxyl group. But because of this hydrogen bonding network it has with that aspartic acid up here. Yep. What's that? What made the serine pull away the hydrogen? You mean the imidazole ring? The serine has a hydrogen. It's, a, it's our group is hydroxyl, right? The imidazole would not be usually sufficiently basic enough to pull a proton off of a hydroxyl group. But the arrangement of that serine with the aspartic acid, you always have that aspartic acid in serine proteases. And it's interacting with the imidazole ring, and it changes the chemical properties of the imidazole ring such that it now needs a proton badly enough that it pulls it off of that serine group. Okay, so we're going to get into the second half of the lecture now, and we're going to talk about uh, enzyme inhibition. So I know that all of you are going to go to med school, and the ones that uh, aren't going to go to med school may become pharmacists. So you probably want, right, med school, dentistry, or pharmacy, right? So, so why are we interested in enzyme inhibition? Well, it turns out that uh, a lot of the drugs we use, pharmacological drugs, are often enzyme inhibitors. In fact, the majority of them. Okay. We talked a bit about how enzymes can be turned on or off. Uh, pharmacological drugs, they often do the same thing. They'll turn an enzyme on or off and they'll uh, influence some sort of metabolic process. So we want to talk about the mechanisms of enzyme inhibition, right? How do we, and how do the different types of inhibition affect the plots that we talked about? So first we want to talk a little bit about reversible inhibition, right? The inhibitor can bind and it can dissociate, okay? That means it's held together, it's held on the enzyme by weak non-covalent interactions. We're going to talk about three different types of reversible inhibition, competitive, uncompetitive, and mixed competitive. Competitive is the most straightforward, I think. It's relatively, um, it's, relatively uh, it's, it's relatively simple to grasp. Here's the scheme we drew out last class. We have enzyme plus substrate, which forms enzyme substrate, which then is converted to enzyme and product. Okay? But when you introduce this inhibitor, I, okay, Enzyme can bind substrate and form enzyme substrate, or it can bind I and form enzyme inhib inhibitor. And the reason that it's an either or is because the inhibitor binds where the substrate binds. So it can't bind both of them. It can bind the substrate, or it can bind the inhibitor. And so that's kind of diagrammed here, right? Here's your enzyme, here's the substrate. The inhibitor kind of looks like the substrate. And so it binds into the active site of the enzyme, and it competes with the substrate for the inhibitor. For the, sorry, the inhibitor competes with the substrate. Right? 
Well, what does that do? What does that do with respect to the graphs we talked about, right? Well, for a particular concentration of inhibitor, right, you're going to get a certain degree of inhibition, but what, what would happen if you were to add more and more and more substrate, right? Well, if you add more and more and more substrate, then basically, so if you can imagine that the inhibitor is competing with the substrate for the active site, well, you can get around that by adding more substrate, right? If you have a million times more substrate than inhibitor, well, it kind of doesn't matter that the inhibitor's there because as far as the enzyme's concerned, it's almost never likely going to run into an inhibitor. And so what happens is, as you add more and more substrate, eventually the Vmax is, you still get back up to the Vmax, right? Having said that, in the presence of substrate, and especially at low amounts of substrate, the apparent affinity of the enzyme for the substrate is going to go down, right? For a particular amount of, ah, for a particular amount of inhibitor, right? So this is the, we, have, we call this the apparent CAM, okay? So for a particular amount of inhibitor, you're going to add the inhibitor, and that, at low amounts of substrate, it's going to seem like the enzyme has lower affinity for the substrate because the enzyme's fighting with the inhibitor for the active site. Sorry, the substrate's fighting with the inhibitor for the active site. Does that make sense? So uh, it effectively changes the enzyme's dependence on substrate concentration. That is the KM. Okay? So the apparent affinity for the substrate goes down. And you can overcome that by swamping it with extra substrate. And if you do that, you eventually do get back up to the Vmax. The enzyme is not inhibited in any way insofar as its ability to do the reaction. It just has trouble, it has, it has a harder time finding the substrate. And so the apparent cam goes, the apparent cam, the apparent affinity goes down, meaning the apparent cam goes up. Remember, cam is Inversely, inversely proportional to affinity, right? Lower CAMs means high affinity. So how does this affect the reaction rate, the rate of the reaction that we described, V-naught? So when we're talking about a competitive inhibitor, we introduce a new term, alpha, that accounts for the change in the KM. Okay, so this was our original Michaelis-Menten equation. Now we put in this term, alpha, okay? Where alpha equals one, plus the inhibitor concentration over the Ki. The Ki is this. This is basically the equilibrium constant for the enzyme inhibitor complex. It looks like Kd, but it's specific for the inhibitor. Okay. Why, this, why this one? Who wants to give me an idea about this? Just in terms of basic algebra. What would happen if there, I didn't add an inhibitor? Let's say I take that one away. Well, can't cover it. If I cover here, it doesn't make any difference to you. If I take that one away and my inhibitor concentration is zero, well, that's what you want. You want it to be just Km, right? If you don't have the one, so if I have a zero here and I don't have the one, then zero over Ki is zero, and zero times Km is zero. So now I've lost Km out of my equation, right? I want it so that if the inhibitor concentration I add is zero, I don't add an add inhibitor, then this becomes zero, and alpha becomes just one, right? So alpha is one times the Km, which is just Km, right? So basically what I can do is I can take my inhibitor concentration, Right? I take the inhibitor concentration of the inhibitor I'm using. You divide that by the Ki, which is going to be relative to the affinity of the inhibitor for the enzyme. That's over here. So I get this term, which I'm going to add to 1. So my term is now going to be greater than 1. And 1 times the Km is going to make for this number is going to get bigger. Right? As this number goes up, because I've got one, something greater than 1 in this term, my velocity is going to drop, right? So for a particular concentration of inhibitor and a particular affinity of inhibitor for enzyme, I'm going to get a measured effect on the rate of the reaction. So how would the rate of the reaction change at low substrate concentration or at high substrate concentration? 
This is what I talked about. I'll talk about this on the next slide. In this context, this KM, this alpha KM, we call that the apparent KM. Okay? The KM of the enzyme doesn't change. The KM of an enzyme is constant. Right? We talked about Vmax and KM being constants for a particular enzyme and a particular substrate. But when you add the inhibitor, the KM apparently changes. So we call that the apparent KM. Right? Oh, I'm not going to go over this? No. All right. Well, I'll go over it now. How is this going to affect the rate of the reaction at low substrate concentration or at high substrate concentration? At high substrate concentration, right, very, very high S, well, then the denominator here is going to be dominated by S. Okay? When S is a very big number, well, then, you know, as I introduce greater and greater term, as it, well, you have to, for a particular amount of inhibitor, right, for a fixed amount of inhibitor, as I add more and more substrate, this part of the equation is going to be increasing more and more with a commensurate increase in the numerator. Basically, what's going to happen is at very, very high concentrations of substrate, this portion of the denominator is going to be swamped out, right? which is basically what we were talking about in the last few slides. At high substrate concentration, the velocity of the reaction is not going to change much. Okay. At low substrate concentration, well, then this term will be relatively bigger. Right? As you get very, very low substrate concentrations for a fixed amount of inhibitor, this term is going to be bigger. This term is going to dominate the denominator. Right? And so you're going to get a change in, in the rate of the reaction. At high substrate concentration, that's right, at very, very high substrate concentration, because this portion of the equation is going to be making up the majority of what's happening here, and this is going to make a relatively smaller contribution, then the V0 is going to get, it never gets to Vmax, right? And, and there will be a very small effect, but as substrate concentration gets higher and higher and higher, you know, as we go further and further and further out here on the x-axis, this is going to eventually get asymptotically close to Vmax. Again, it's never going to get there. Right? So how does this affect our Lineweaver-Burke plot? Right? As we've noted, a competitive inhibitor changes the apparent cam, but not the Vmax. Okay? Remember, the y-intercept is 1 over Vmax. The x-intercept is minus 1 over the, alpha, over the cam, or the alpha cam at this point. Right? We're introducing this alpha term to talk about this concept of this inhibitor. I think I said last class 1 over the cam is the x-intercept. It's minus 1 over the cam. It's just what you see on the graph. So the apparent cam changes, but the Vmax doesn't change. Right? So if the y-intercept is 1 over the Vmax, then that's going to stay constant. So your y-intercept doesn't change. Right? Your x-intercept does. Right? And your slope, remember, is the cam over the Vmax. You're not changing the Vmax, but you're changing the cam, so the slope's going to change. So when you see a Lineweaver-Burke plot that looks like this in the presence of inhibitor, you know it's a competitive inhibitor. Okay? And if you understand kind of how your basic algebra works with respect to plotting things, you can kind of trace that back to what we've been talking about. Okay, so moving now to a uncompetitive inhibitor, which binds away from the active site. Okay? And for simplicity, and we'll talk about this in a little bit in the next few slides, we talk about an uncompetitive inhibitor binding to the enzyme substrate complex, okay? or effectively to the en uh, enzyme substrate complex. So you've got E plus S, and then that forms ES, and that will bind the inhibitor. Okay? And now you've got this ESI, right? enzyme substrate with the inhibitor on it. The important point to think about with respect to an uncompetitive inhibitor is that when the inhibitor binds to the enzyme, it binds away from the active site and it twists the enzyme, it bends the enzyme. So here's, it doesn't interfere with substrate binding, right? The substrate can still bind here, right? The inhibitor binds somewhere else and it strains the enzyme. The enzyme becomes misfolded or not optimally shaped anymore and now the enzyme doesn't work as well. 
right? So how is that fundamentally different than what we talked about for, uh, for a competitive inhibitor? This enzyme is, in effect, defective, right? And what that means is that um, I didn't show the graph. So before, when the competitive inhibitor eventually got to Vmax, for a particular concentration of inhibitor, because the enzyme is defective, the Vmax will be lower. Right? It's not the enzyme doesn't work as well. So the KCAT drops, and you're going to get a lower Vmax. So the, the inhibitor strains the enzyme and decreases its efficiency. Okay. So to affect our Michaelis-Menten equation in the context of an uncompetitive inhibitor, we introduce a new term, alpha prime, okay, and that we introduce over here. And the concept of alpha prime is the same as the concept for alpha, except it's just on this side of the term. Alpha prime is one plus again the inhibitor concentration over the K prime inhibitor and the K prime inhibitor equilibrium is similar to what we talked about before. It's the ES times the concentration of the inhibitor over the. So this is just basically an equilibrium constant that you substitute into this alpha prime equation. And the uncompetitive inhibitor is going to lower Vmax, which is what I talked about, right? It, the V naught is going to now be Vmax divided by this alpha prime. So you're going to get an apparent change in Vmax. We call it, again, we call it an apparent change. The Vmax of an enzyme is a constant, but in the presence of the inhibitor, there's going to be uh, an apparent new change to the Vmax, so we call it the apparent Vmax. Okay? There's also going to be a change to the apparent Km. All right? You're going to need less substrate to get to half of the lower Vmax. Right? So the Km, the Km apparent also changes. So an uncompetitive inhibitor changes both Vmax and Km. So let's talk about that a little bit more here. How does an uncompetitive, uncompetitive, uncompetitive inhibitor affect V0? So at very low substrate concentrations, much, much lower than the KM, right? the apparent V0 equals V0 because alpha prime times S is going to be close to 0. Okay. So I'm going to draw it out a bit here because I didn't put it in the slides. And I think there should be an equivalent figure in your text. Hopefully I got it right. So at very low substrate concentrations, much, much below the Km, the apparent V0 is the same as the V0 since this term will be basically 0. So the denominator is going to be dominated by the Km. So at very low substrate concentrations, these graphs look very similar. These plots look very similar. Okay. At high substrate concentrations, much, much greater than the CAM, then this term starts to dominate the reaction. And the apparent V0. Whoa, what am I doing? And the apparent V0 is much less than the, than the V0. Okay. So at higher substrate concentrations, you've got this difference between the apparent V0 and the original V0. Okay. So, how does this affect our Lineweaver-Burke? Okay, we've altered the KM, we've altered the Vmax, but the ratio to which we've altered them is the same, right? We both al we altered them both by this alpha prime component by the same amount, right? So what that does is that it changes the x-intercept on your 
Langweaver-Burke. You've, you've changed the apparent Km. You've changed the apparent Vmax by the same amount, so you've changed both the x-intercept and the y-intercept. But the slope of the line, the Km over the Vmax, it's been changed by the same amount, right? So the slope of the line is unchanged. So if you have a Langweaver-Burke plot that looks like this after you've added your inhibitor, then you know you've got this uncompetitive inhibitor. The last one we're going to talk about is this not, sorry, do you have a question? Yeah. So, so this new, this new V, so this is the new Vmax, right? This is the, v, the apparent Vmax. So the question is about the apparent Km, that thing that I talked about, the new apparent Km. You need less substrate to get to this lower Vmax, right? So the apparent Km drops. That's right. Yeah. So this is 50% of this. Yeah. Okay. So the last one is this mixed inhibition, which is kind of a combination of both. Basically, we have an inhibitor that will bind either to the enzyme or the enzyme substrate in and around the active site. So it kind of competes for the active site, but it also twists the enzyme. So not all enzymes work the same way, right? Not all inhibitors work the same way. So you're going to have this, in this case, we have an inhibitor that can bind here or to this. It both competes for the active site with the substrate and it twists the enzyme, okay? So what we do is, we, it's relatively straightforward and simple. We just use both an alpha term and an alpha prime term, okay? And so this is, I'll, I'll go back to the line weaver burke in a second, but this is basically how all reversible inhibition works, right? If you've got a um, competitive inhibitor, you've got an alpha term. If you've got an uncompetitive inhibitor, you've got an alpha prime term. And if you've got a mixed inhibitor, you've got both the alpha and the alpha prime term, okay? You can, in theory, put alpha and alpha prime in all the time. And if your enzyme is a... Uh, competitive inhibitor, well then there's going to be an alpha term here, and your alpha prime term will just be the one, remember? So it'll just be one. To, it's going to basically not contribute to your equation at all, right? But the point is that, I want to go back to this now, so basically for a non-competitive or mixed inhibition, we're changing the apparent Km, we're changing the apparent Vmax, but now we're not changing them by the same amount, right? They're not the same number. And so what happens is you change your x-intercept, you change your y-intercept, and you change your slope. And so something that looks like this would be um, a mixed competitive or non-competitive inhibition. Okay. And so this is a table. It's a helpful table that you have in your text. Kind of a summary of all the different effects of what happens, right? For a competitive inhibitor, Vmax does not change, but the Km changes. There's an apparent change in Km because there's this alpha term. For an uncompetitive inhibitor, you got this alpha prime component, which changes both the Vmax and the Km, but it changes them both by the same amount. So on the Leibniz-Weaver-Burke plot, uh, there's, no, there's no change in the slope. And for the mixed competitor, you're basically adding back this term in with this term. You're just combining these two. So you've got the alpha cam over the alpha prime and the Vmax over the alpha prime. Okay. And you can basically go back to the graphs and look at those graphs and, and, and just, you know, at, at the very basic level, you should be able to look at the graphs and say, well, okay, they've got this shape. I see this pattern, so I can make a guess as to what kind of inhibition I'm looking at. Other than that, these this expression is just basically, as long as you know what alpha is and alpha prime is, then all 
you would expect to be expected to be able to do with respect to this equation is just is just basic algebra. The question is, when you're on the midterm, when you're going to be, uh, is it going to be more theoretical or are you going to be given the numbers? Um, I mean, I'm not interested in people deriving equations from first principles. Do you know what I mean? So there will be probably questions on the midterm where I just give you the numbers and I ask you to give me the right answer using basic math. Having said that, I could say something like, you know, for a competitive inhibitor, what's going to change? The apparent KM, the apparent Vmax, both of them, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I guess that's in theory theoretical, but it's not very far removed from what we've been talking about in class. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, you're allowed to have a calculator in the exam. I would suggest you bring a calculator, um, unless you can do log in your head. Uh, but it should be non-programmable. We will go around and check. And if it's a programmable calculator, you won't be able to keep it. So just a, a basic scientific calculator, please. Yeah. I don't give you the equations. But there's like two. There's basically this one and Henderson Hasselbeck. Oh. 35? It's only multiple choice. OK, so the question is, are we done? No, we're not done. I still have 20 minutes, right? The question is, how many questions on the midterm and uh, the nature of the midterm? The midterm is all multiple choice. And um, typically, there's on the order of 30 to 35 questions. And you have 75 minutes. So. Typically, people don't run out of time, but I encourage you not to dawdle. I mean, some questions will take a little bit longer than others because there may be some math involved. Some questions you're just going to look at, and in 10 seconds, you're going to write the answer. But other ones, you may have to think about a bit. There's a, there's a fine line between giving you too much time. If I don't, you know, just between you and me, uh, students like Students, in my experience, don't like too few questions because then they worry that each question's worth too much, even though that doesn't make sense. But they worry that it is worth too much, and so getting a mistake influences their mark too much. But then too many questions makes the exam panicky. You're, you don't have time to do everything. So it seems as though most people have time to finish 35 questions in 75 minutes. So. But I encourage you not, I mean, this is my personal opinion. You, you know best how, to, how you take tests. But I encourage you to not, uh, there's a danger to finishing too early. And then you sit there and you look at your exam and you start wondering about whether or not the placement of this comma changes what you think the answer is going to be. And then you start second guessing yourself. I don't, I try not to do that. I try not to have exam questions where you have to think of the sentence in this way to get the right answer. It should be relatively straightforward. And so unless you look at your answer and say, uh, oh, oh, right, you know, I forgot to carry the two or something, fine, then change your answer. But don't, don't second guess yourself. If, if the answer was relatively obvious to you, you were probably right. That's the problem with too much time on exams. People just feel they need to fill the time. And they, Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about um, irreversible inhibition. So this is an example of how we inhibit chymotrypsin, and there's just some important concepts I want to get across here. Again, you don't need to draw structures. There's, you can't. It's multiple choice. I'm not going to show you this figure where I move some bonds around and say, I'm not going to show you four different versions of DIFP and ask you which one is the right structure because you know, I'm going to put a double bond here or something. I'm not going to do that. I'm not asking you to really memorize structures. 
This is a question I've gotten a lot. With the structures of the amino acids, do you need to memorize them? You should recognize the amino acids, okay? You should look at histidine and say, that's histidine. And that's arginine, okay? You should be able to do that. But I'm not going to put four different pictures of lysine where I've moved a bond around and said, which one is the real lysine and which is, you know, I'm not going to. But you should be able to recognize them, okay? And especially you should know what bins they're in. You should understand lysine and arginine and histidine are the basic amino acids. And aspartic acid and glutamic acid are the acidic amino acids. So I mean, what I, I think the best one to go with, so the question is charts for binning the amino acids or something like that, color-coded. I think the best one to go with is the one that you get, were given in your slides. When I, your slide said, these are the aromatic amino acids. And then I put lysine, sorry, tyrosine, phenylalanine, tryptophan. I would go with that because different books do it different ways, right? Some books put tyrosine in the polar ones because it's got a hydroxyl on it. And it, that can make a hydrogen bond. But I happen to believe, and that this textbook agrees, that tyrosine should be grouped with the aromatics because it behaves as an aromatic. It likes to be in the middle of proteins, and it's hydrophobic. That doesn't mean it can't make a hydrogen bond. It can. But most times you see a tyrosine, it's behaving as an aromatic would. So I, I think there's a danger in I mean, obviously, you want to educate yourself and inform yourself, but don't psych yourself out by looking at all these different things and making yourself confused. Well, it's not that there's a debate. It's just that we've we been the amino acids. Nature didn't, right? Nature made these amino acids to do different things. And so for our convenience, we bin them in different bins. Okay. I don't have too much left, right? So we're going to try to get out of this. Otherwise, you'll have questions on the midterm you haven't covered. Um, so here's our serine protease, OK? Right, this is chymotrypsin. This is DIFP. The point is that DIFP forms a covalent interaction with this serine, right? We talked about how this O, when this this is the H that gets pulled off by the histidine 57, right? And then this O minus wants to bind to something, and so it binds something it binds the C double bond O in the, in the protein and makes a covalent linkage to it. Well, this protein looks a bit like a protein. It's important that the inhibitor looks a little bit like the substrate. And so what happens is it will bind, but instead, then you get this fluoride leaving group. Basically, you get this tetrahedral intermediate around this phosphate instead of this tetrahedral intermediate around that carbon of the substrate. But this is irreversible, right? This will never come off. And so what you've done is you've killed the enzyme. The enzyme doesn't work anymore. Okay? And so the concept to get across here is this idea of you make an irreversible covalent bond in the active site of the enzyme. It locks it in an inactive conformation. The inhibitor has to look a little bit like, at least a little bit like the substrate. Otherwise, the enzyme won't have any affinity for it. This is a little bit more uh, med medically relevant. So you guys have probably heard about um, African sleeping sickness. This is a disease that's um, caused by a trypanosome that's transmitted by something called a tsetse fly. So basically, you've got this enzyme, all right, this ornithine decarboxylase. This is an uh, enzyme that both humans have and the trypanosome that causes the disease has. It's an important enzyme. Uh, it's important in DNA packaging. The normal function of ornithine decarboxylase is to take this molecule ornithine and convert it to putrescine. Okay? To do that, the enzyme, ornithine decarboxylase, Ornithine decarboxylase has this cofactor. We're going to talk more about this cofactor. You don't need to memorize the structure. This is conceptual. It's got this cofactor called pyridoxal phosphate. Okay, that's part of this ornithine decarboxylase. It forms this covalent enzyme intermediate with the substrate. And when that covalent intermediate resolve, when that covalent um, transition state intermediate resolves, you get a decarboxylation reaction, so ornithine gets decarboxylated. This carbon dioxide comes off. And when the substrate is released from the enzyme, from this pyridoxal phosphate, you generate putrescine, and you regenerate the enzyme. So now you've got this pyridoxal phosphate that is regenerated. 
Okay. This um, this enzyme, both humans have it, and the trypanosome has has it. Humans, our enzyme, we're always making lots of it, and we're always breaking down lots of it. Whereas the trypanosome, it's got about the same amount of the enzyme in its living system, but it, the reason it has the same amount is because it makes less, but it also turns it over less. So think of, you know, um, I'm not sure what analogy I want to do. You know, if I've got a certain amount of loose leaf paper in my house, I always have the same amount, either because I use it and throw it out very rarely, or I'm always bringing in more and I'm always throwing it out. But the steady state of paper in my house is the same, right? So we humans are always making this enzyme and then always breaking it down. The trypanosome makes it less, but also breaks it down less, okay? But the point is that this, en this chemical, DFMO, it binds to the enzyme and it kills it. And that's a problem for the trypanosome because it makes so little. It's always making very little of it and breaking it down very slowly. So when the chemical binds to the enzyme of the trypanosome, the enzyme is inactivated and the trypanosome needs the enzyme to live and so the trypanosome dies. When the same chemical binds to the human enzyme, yes, it inactivates the human enzyme, but the human enzyme is always breaking it down and making more. So it inactivates that enzyme, that enzyme is turned over, the human then the human cell then makes more enzyme, and eventually you basically deplete the DFMO in the cell, and so it has much, much, at a particular concentration of inhibitor, or uh, DFMO, it's much, much worse for the trypanosome than it is for the human. Obviously, if you used an amount of DFMO that was sufficient to inactivate all the human enzyme and all the human enzyme, enzyme that you regenerate, well, then that would be a problem. That's, we talk about drugs and and drugs can have toxicity, so you have to pick an amount that the human cell can deal with, but the trypanosome doesn't, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so a reminder, so that's the end of material for midterm one, and a reminder that I have office hours today in uh, LSB.